Hey guys, welcome to the Awakening Report. Your host, Doug Hamp here. I am taking your questions today. Always excited to do it. That's a good time. Uh, looking forward to it. Before I get to it, though, I want to let you know that if you really enjoy watching this show and you want to uh, help support it, you want to help support the ministry, thank you. You can go to my Patreon page. Uh, there's a link at the top of this video, or you can go to patreon.com forward slash Doug Hamp, and you can get my Patreon page there. And you can give as little as $2 a month. You can give as much as you want, of course. But thank you. It really does help uh, to keep this uh, show on the air or on the internet waves or whatever we have nowadays. Um, I, it really does it really does help. So thank you uh, for that. And, and just a big shout out to my patrons already. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I want you to know I, I do notice. And I say thank you. So, hey, let's get into the questions. We got some great questions here. Uh, first of all, we got Stephen from Liverpool in the UK. Excuse me. All right. He asks, what do you make of the Abraham records? I'm hearing very different views on this with some saying it is a good thing and others saying it is part of a false covenant of the Antichrist. All right, Stephen, I've got to be completely honest. I have not heard of the Abraham records. I will say this though, be careful because there's a lot of stuff that floats around on the internet. There's a lot of uh, teachers that I think mean well, but sometimes maybe they don't fact check. Maybe they don't dig deep enough. Um, I, I, I will say this, the book of Jasher has some of those um, stories that are floating around it. And a lot of people put a tremendous amount of credibility in the book of Jasher. I do not. Uh, I think the book of Jasher is a very, very late uh, resource. I, I do not think it was written by Jasher. People say, well, it's in the Bible. It says the book of Jasher. That's true. And there, it, there was a real book of Jasher. But the one we have floating around today, I do not believe is the real genuine thing. That's the point. All right. So yes, there was a book of Jasher, but then some other guy much later, wrote his version of the book of Jasher and said, ta-da, here's the book of Jasher. Kind of like how uh, Mr. Smith of the Mormons, right, he went and made up his own book and said, well, here it is. It says right here in these books about Mormonism. And yet there's no evidence for that, right? So that's what I would say. So these stories about Abraham could be coming from the book of Jasher. Now, again, I don't know. I have not researched this. Uh, I So I don't know what these Abraham records are. But I am not aware of any scholarship uh, that has discovered this, any archaeologists that have discovered the Abraham records. Um, so I would be very, very, very skeptical of whatever these are. And I have a feeling they're probably not worth your time. Just a guess, all right? But take that with a grain of salt. I hope that helps, Stephen. And uh, thanks for the question. Thanks for tuning in from the UK. That's awesome. All right, Ed has a great question. He says, hey, bud, what does cut off from among his people mean per Leviticus 18.29? Well, let's take a look over there in Leviticus 18.29. It says, all right, and I'm going to back up just a little bit. Context is so super duper important. 
So it says, uh, for the land is, well, let me go back here. Do not defile yourself with any of these things. For by all these, the nations are defiled, which I'm casting out before you. For the land is defiled. Therefore, I visit the punishment of its iniquity upon it. And the land vomits out its inhabitants. So that right there is super important. What happened to those important to those uh, inhabitants? They got they got cut off from the land. Uh, many of them lost their lives. Okay, not necessarily all of them, but many of them. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, and shall not commit any of these abominations, either any of your own nation or any stranger who dwells among you. For all these abominations the men of the land have done who were before you, and thus the land is defiled. Lest the land vomit you out also when you defile it, as it vomited out the nations that were before you. For whoever commits any of these abominations, the persons who commit them shall be cut off from among his people. All right, so I think there's a couple ways to look at this. First of all, just so you know, Ed, I am not aware, and I don't believe the scripture actually says specifically what being cut off is. I think it can be killed, but it can also be um, excommunicated, all right? So uh, sent away from your people. So it could involve death. I think that's a real possibility, and I think we could find evidence for that. But there seems to be some ambiguity about the word, and it does not necessarily always refer to being killed but it could include that think about the northern kingdom of israel they were cut off from the land many of them lost their lives but not all of them some were taken away some were just mingled and they were no longer part of it remember the pronouncement that god said to israel he said i am not your god and you're not my people he divorced them right divorced he he cut them in half so to speak uh, he, he cut them off from himself. Now, they didn't automatically die. Uh, the people that were part of that, some did die, of course, but many did not die. And those people uh, were simply cut off from the relationship of God. Let's take it into a, a modern context. Let's say that you are an American citizen, for example, and you commit treason against the United States. Now, you, you may be killed for that treasonous act, and I think that's definitely a possibility, but you may also be sent away. Think about the Apostle John. He was sent away to the island of Patmos, right? He lived in exile. Exile. Napoleon, uh, they should have killed him, but because he kept causing havoc, but they, they exiled him. And then he came back and did it again, right? So he was in exile. He was cut off from Europe, and then he came back, of course. There's a whole interesting history there. But to be cut off is, to, is for the relationship with God to be severed. I don't know that it's, uh, that it's a forever kind of severance. In fact, God says to Israel, hey, you're not my people. I'm not your God. But. One day I'm going to bring you back to me. I'm going to betroth you to me in righteousness. And that, I think, is, is being saved. You know, when, when the Bible talks about being saved, people understood, you know, how can, how can I be saved? What can these people do to be saved? Jesus came to save people. We, now, I grew up as a Baptist, so I thought, well, they were saved from hell, right? I thought that was the absolute 
thing that they were talking about. But as I've gone back and I've rediscovered those things and looked at those scriptures, I'm like, well, hell may be part of the consequence. That That's, I think, a real possibility. But that's not specifically. It's that the people were severed from a relationship with the Most High God. Whether it involved death, involves death, I think, is uh, another discussion. Hey, Ed's got another question. Fantastic. He asked, did the purpose of baptism change post-resurrection, Acts 19.4, versus Acts 2.38? All right, man, that's a great question, Ed. And what I'm going to do, what I propose, is I want to share a PowerPoint I put together. So let me pull that up uh, so that you guys... Just for the fun of it. No, you don't. Hold on. Let me share the button. There we go. All right. And okay, cool. All right. And let me just make that full screen. It's all these buttons to push. I'm the producer as well. So that's all part of the fun. Okay. Oh, hold on. There we go. Okay. So uh, the first century rabbinic debate uh, had this, this, this discussion about proselytes. What did proselytes need to do? Um, so, uh, of course, we know from Acts chapter 15 that it says that unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So there's the, the word saved, right? As we were talking about in the previous discussion. What does it mean to be saved? Well, to be brought back into a relationship with the Most High God. That's what it is to be saved, is to be brought back into a relationship with the Most High God. So in the context of the first century Judaism, not Christianity, but Judaism, the question, this debate was raging long before Jesus and the disciples came on the scenes. So the debate, Hellenistic Judaism would admit Gentiles after having undergone the rite of baptism. That is regeneration by living water, uh, you can see Sibylline uh, 4, where it says, wash your whole stature clean from impurity and running waters, and with hands uplifted to heaven, ask for forgiveness for your doing. Then the worship of God will heal gross impiety. So within the Jewish context, not Jesus, I'm not talking Christianity, within that context, there was this rite of baptism. Right? I mean, this is amazing. Now, Rabbi Joshua asserted that the baptismal rite rendered a person a full proselyte without circumcision. So this is tied to that circumcision discussion that we have in Acts 15. So again, the baptismal rite rendered a person a full proselyte. That's an important word there. Uh, without circumcision, as Israel, when receiving the law, required no initiation other than the purific purificative bath. All right, when did they take a purificative bath? When they went through the Red Sea. Paul says that very thing, that all were baptized into Moses. They went through the Red Sea. Um, whereas on the other side, this is the strict school of thought, Rabbi Eliezer makes circumcision a condition for the admission of a proselyte. And this is from the jewishencyclopedia.com, all right? So this is not a Christian source. I really want to point that out. 
So again, the rite of baptism rendered a person a full proselyte. So what are we talking about? What really is in view in those texts that we just read? Baptism was the demarcation. It was the thing that you did to prove, to show, to inculcate yourself into this new religion. That was your, your proof of conversion. Now, I'm using that word very purposefully, all right, uh, conversion. I, I know that um, sometimes when we're talking with Jewish people, the word conversion is very off-putting. Sometimes uh, different generations are very put off by that, that term conversion, and I don't use it lightly. But there was a sense that you went from being a pagan, you converted into now walking in Torah, being part of the covenant relationship. So somebody who was of the nations could come in when they went through baptism. Now, John was doing baptism for who? For Judah, right? Now, they did not necessarily need that because they were already in a relationship, albeit a broken relationship. It was indeed a broken relationship. That This is part of the challenge of sorting these things out is that there really was a broken relationship. And I want to go to a few texts so that we can uh, we can see, see those. Let me make sure that I am sharing my screen. Okay, looks like I am. So I'm going to go here to the Bible and we will go to Romans chapter 7. All right, so this is, of course, a wonderful passage. I love this passage. Do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over man as long as he lives. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she's released from the law of her husband. All right, so we're talking about marriage here. And if the husband dies, she's released from not the Torah, not the Ten Commandments, but the law of her husband. All right, very important. So then, if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she'll be called an adulteress. Think about Israel. Israel is married to God. God didn't die. Israel went after other gods. She was called an adulteress. All throughout the scriptures, all throughout the scriptures, uh, both Judah and the house of Israel are called adulterous wives. It's there. I mean, it's just, it's all over the place. So the remedy to fix, to fix the problem is to bring Israel, but to bring Israel back in, the husband has to die. So then if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she'll be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law, the law of the husband, so that she's no adulteress, though she's married another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead that we should bear fruit to God. This is amazing. Look at, you're, you're dead because of the body of Christ. That's husband number one. And of course, then there's all these, you know, false God husbands, right? We understand that. So this husband that she was married to, despite all of the frolicking around and adulterating, this husband died. So that contract is dead. And now she's married to a new person, to the one who was raised from the dead. Really the same guy, but legally, two different people. There was Jesus 
who died to cancel, yes, cancel the old marriage contract. And then there's Jesus who rose anew, who established the new marriage contract, the new covenant. Paul says this much in Romans chapter 9. One of the reasons I think Paul is so misunderstood is because people are not understanding what he is saying about the the the, the two houses, the uh, commonwealth of Israel, and how Jesus put them back together. That's the point. And so if you don't get that, then you can easily miss what Paul is saying here. So in uh, Romans 9, verse 24, he says, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, so he called us the Jews, Paul's a Jew, but also of the Gentiles. Again, remember, Gentiles comes from the Latin word gens, which is from the Greek ethnos, which just means nation. Mo, uh, Abraham was called a nation. God promised to make him a great nation, a goy. So uh, Gentile is not necessarily pejorative. It could be used as a pejorative, but it doesn't have to be. Uh, Gentile is just somebody who is of the nations. And so how did these people become the nations? Well, some were just born that way, but some were mingled into them. And the house of Israel was mingled in to the nations. They became part of the nation. They themselves were lost. They were cut off and they could not be found. They're not hiding behind a mountain somewhere. They are now part of the nations. And he says, I will call them my people who were not my people and her beloved who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it said to them, you are, you are not sons of my, excuse me, where it said to them, you are not my people. There they should be called sons of the living God. So obviously this is from the book of Hosea, where God says, okay, it's over. I'm divorcing you. See you later. Get out of here. Now they're brought back in. So per your question, I haven't forgot your question, Ed. Uh, what did the purpose of baptism change post-resurrection? I don't believe so. I do not believe so. I think John had a unique kind of baptism that was calling people who were in a broken relationship with God to repent. It was a baptism unto repentance, right? It was that sense of, hey, I've, I've broken God's ways. I'm going to repent, right? And they remained a Jew, right? They, they didn't become Christians in that sense. But then somebody who was of the Gentiles, of the nations, and then they uh, were baptized, they converted. We see this in other places. We see this in uh, Acts chapter 10. Let me go there. Acts chapter 10. Now you recall that Peter uh, was quite racist, really, when you think about it, because here's this guy in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion, was called the Italian regiment, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. So then he gets this prayer and he says, go find Simon. Uh, so then Peter, Simon Peter, is having a dream, and this sheet is let down to him, all different kinds of animals, wild bees, creeping things, birds of the air. And a voice came to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, no, so, Lord, for I've never eaten anything common or unclean. And a voice spoke to him again the second time, what God has cleansed, you must not call common. 
This was done three times and the object was taken up into heaven again. Now when Peter wondered within himself what this vision which he had seen meant, behold, the men who were sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. And they called and asked whether Simon was there. And he says, yes. So he goes. And then we have the big reveal in verse 28. He says, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man. Notice here, it's not about food. <laughs> that, that was just the, the, the wake up and the shake up. Hey, Peter, wake up, right? Yes, listen, I've now cleansed the Gentiles. So don't call them common or unclean. All right, so this is a pretty incredible time. Uh, Peter is pretty amazed. He says, uh, I perceive, I now, in truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. Through the word, uh, the word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. All right. So he pulls it all together here. And um, he says, can anyone forbid us that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. And then they asked him to stay for a few days. So he immediately baptizes. Why does he baptize? Because now these guys are converting. They're becoming not Jews. They're not becoming Jews. They're becoming part of the commonwealth of Israel. Now, if let, let's say, what about the Jews? Do they need to uh, convert, so to speak? Well, in a sense, yes. Because remember, they were in a broken relationship. If they hold on to the old covenant, then what they're doing is they're saying, I'm going to remain legally in this old marriage relationship where I and my people broke God's commandments again and again and again and hope things will go well. And yet that contract is dead. I want to make that clear. That contract is dead. All right. Let me take you now to Jeremiah chapter. Three, because in Jeremiah 3, he talks a lot about this. If a man divorces his wife, right? This sounds like we read in, in Romans chapter 7. And she goes from him and becomes another man's wife. May he return to her again? Well, obviously no, right? Would not that land be greatly polluted, but you have played the harlot with many lovers, yet return to me. Who is he talking to? He's talking to Judah. Talking to Judah right here. Pretty amazing. All right, so he he you know says all the things that you've done, bad, bad, bad. All right, the Lord also said to me in the days of Josiah the king, have you seen what backsliding Israel's done? She's gone up on every high mountain and under every green tree, and there played the harlot. And I said, after all, after she had done all these things, return to me, Shuvialai. She did not return, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. Then I saw that for all the causes for which backsliding Israel had committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a certificate of divorce. So who got divorced? The house of Israel. Judah did not get divorced. But, it says, yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but went and played the harlot also. So it came to pass through her casual harlotry 
that she defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and trees. And yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah has not turned to me with her whole heart, but in pretense. Then the Lord said to me, backsliding Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. So God did not divorce the house of Judah because he made a promise to David. He said, I will never completely take it away. I'll chastise and do stuff. I'll take you in exile and whatnot, but I'll never break this relationship. But what happened on the cross is that Jesus died. He canceled that relationship because it was broken. Just think about it. Just, I mean, just think, put yourself in that place. You're married to somebody and they go off two-timing again and again and again. You're like, I would love to divorce this person, but I made a promise, you know, to my dying mother that I would never get divorced or whatever, whatever you decide to promise. And you're intent on keeping that promise, right? And then you find a way that you can, you can end that relationship and yet marry the same person. Right? You're like, you know, this marriage, that this thing that we signed on date X, Y, and Z, you know, February 1st, whatever, it's broken because it, it's so filled with adultery, with cheating, with two-timing, with backstabbing. I want to end it. It just, the whole thing makes me icky, right? I want, a, I want a new marriage picture. I want a, a new marriage contract. I want to get a new ring. But with this person, because I still kind of love this person, even though they really messed me over. So that's what God does. He ends the relationship. He cancels the contract. And then he establishes a new one when Jesus rises from the dead. It's so glorious. I love it. I love it. So I hope that makes sense to you, Ed. John's baptism was calling people to repent, to, to um, come back to God within the context of that first or old marriage contract. And now the new marriage contract is calling people to enter and to become proselytes, to convert, but now to become part of the commonwealth of Israel. Not to become Jews, but to become part of the commonwealth of Israel. And that was a great one. Thank you. Fantastic. All right. Uh, okay, Stephen says, the Abraham Accords is the name given to the peace treaty between Israel and the UAE. Okay. Fascinating. I, I don't know. I, I really don't have information on that. So um, I always find those things uh, kind of have these big flashes, glitz, and it takes a little while for it to really settle in. So I, I prefer not to speculate too much on that. I'd rather just let the news cycle do its thing. And if it's really going to happen, then we'll have something, you know, in ink and it will be, you know, settled. So that, that's my take on that. But uh, very cool. All right. So we have another question from, or a different question from Keith. Why then are we not treating Torah the same way compared to the cuneiform clay tablets found in Iraq? If age and authenticity is paramount, this exposes Moses' Torah as a copycat. Hmm. Okay, I'm thinking about that one. <laughs> that, that's a good one, Keith. All right. Um, well, okay. So, you know, if something is the first, we think that would, must be the original, right? If, uh, if we have these contracts or we have uh, Sumerian 
an Akkadian um, um, inscriptions and whatnot, you'd think, well, you know, that must be original, right? So we have things like the story of Gilgamesh. We have Enuma Elish that have various forms of it. But let's keep something in mind. So according to the Bible, according to the book of Genesis, we have the original account given to us, uh, well, certainly by God, when he was giving the creation account, he was the only guy there, right? Then we have Adam and Eve, who probably got it directly from God. And then we go to other places. So let me take you to uh, something in the text here. I want to go to Genesis chapter 37. And we're going to look at something called a colophon. All right. So it says, this is the history of Jacob. So let's look at that in the Hebrew. In the Hebrew, let me pull it up here side by side. Uh, this is the history of Jacob. In the Hebrew, it's Ele Toledot. All right. So Ele Toledot is a phrase that we see again and again. For example, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, this is the history of Ele Toledot. All right. So we find this again and again. What this suggests, and this is called the colophon theory, which I uh, definitely subscribe to. I think it makes the most sense, is that in the entire book of Genesis, I'm not going to talk about the other four books of Moses, but the book of Genesis is unique because obviously Moses wasn't there, right? And the thing about Exodus, he was there. Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, he was there, right? He, he could have written those down, and I think, I think he did, except the latter parts of uh, Deuteronomy when he was dead, and then Joshua had to write it down. So why not have it be Moses? So what about Genesis? Genesis, I believe, is a collection of either written or oral accounts. They start with, this is the history of. So we have the history of the heavens and the earth. We have the history of Adam and Eve. We have the history of uh, Seth. Then we have the history of Noah. Then we have the history of Shem. Then we have the history of Abraham. And then we get to Jacob. So these, these are the various histories, Eli Toledot. And if you have a scroll, if these were written down, and I don't have any evidence of that, I think it's very plausible, but I don't know for certain. But I think it's plausible that these could have written, been written down, that as you're opening a scroll, I wish I had a scroll just lying around, but I don't. So you, you have to you know, pull it open, and you're going to open up that little inside there to see you know, that says, like, oh, this is telling me what this is all about. This is the name of this scroll. This scroll is about this guy's history. So you, you get several of these, and then you have somebody called the redactor, the editor. And I believe that there was, in fact, an editor for the book of Genesis. Now, what's interesting about this is a lot of uh, what we call a liberal kind of theology, people that, that subscribe to the documentary hypothesis where you have J, D, E, and P, right? The Yahwistic source, the Deuteronomistic source, the Elohistic source, so it'd be J, E, P, and D, right? So Elohistic, priestly, and then the Deuteronomistic. So these different sources, according to this particular school, this Wellhausen school of thought, suggest that uh, a, a, a scribe 
you know, way late, maybe uh, end of the first temple period or beginning of the second temple period, some scribe kind of put this stuff together. I mean, he had some various accounts, some various sources. Uh, one source was somebody who was really into the name Jehovah, right? So there's your, your J source, Yahwistic source. And then somebody else was into the term Elohim. And so that's called your E source. Then you have your priestly source, which is essentially the book of Leviticus. And then you have your Deuteronomistic source, your Deuteronomy source. Uh, but of course, none of these were from Moses, as they say. I think that's silly. I think Moses is a very good um, candidate for the author, certainly of, of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And I don't see why not Genesis as well. But with one caveat. He was not the author, he was the redactor. Because I don't think he wrote those. I don't think that God's like, okay, all right, Moses, get your pen out. Uh, let me tell you about it. In the beginning, I don't think that that's what happened. I just don't, I, I don't see that. I think the people were, were passing things down from generation to generation. After all, how did Abraham know what had, what had come before him? How, right? How did Jacob know about what had come before him? People memorize things and they pass them down word for word from generation to generation not everything but the most important stuff yes and that's not hard to do now you might say well that's impossible we could never do that well we don't do it because we use books we write things down we have emails and all this other stuff so we have lost uh, a skill that people once had i like books trust me but We've lost a skill. People used to memorize things and know them word for word. So this is not far-fetched. So again, Moses, in my opinion, was the redactor of that. Now, if this is true, if this theory is correct, then that means you have sources from the very beginning. We don't have those documents. We don't have the actual manuscripts. I wish we did. Those are called the autographs. Oh. Wouldn't that be amazing if we had the actual autographs in our hands? That'd be amazing. But we don't. We don't. But I believe that we have a faithfully preserved copy. Now, there are places in the book of Genesis where you can see the hand of the redactor. For example, when Jacob goes to Beit El, he says it was formerly called Luz. So that tells you something right there, right? It wasn't. Jacob probably probably wasn't Jacob who who said, "Hey, by the way, uh, this used to be called uh, Lewis, but I'm going to call it Beto." But probably the guy who was compiling all of these different sources, and he put in these little little explanations here, just here and there, not a lot, but once in a while, he put in an explanation. So I would say that the Book of Genesis is a, a an old, original, primary source. That's super important. It's a primary source. Even though the copy that we have is later. Agreed. I totally agree. But the original, which we don't have, would have been super old. I mean, from the beginning of time, right? From the beginning of when God put, well, he spoke everything into existence when he, when he said, right? And that's, uh, that's the beginning. <laughs> so that is is given to us by God. And then Adam, you know, wrote down his account, etc. So I, I think we have old sources. Now, 
people might say, well, we have uh, good good uh, information, uh, or there a lot of people suggest that the Bible has simply borrowed these ideas from from Mesopotamia. We we definitely see a common source that there was a common thread that I would suggest the the stories of Shinar, the stories of Sumer, Sumer and Shinar, they're the, exactly the same thing. What happens in Sumer is the story told by Satan and his dudes. The story told in the Bible is by God and his faithful. So yes, we have lots of parallel ideas. We have these similar thoughts. We have some similar language that we find in both. We can trace the, the idea of the flood back in Mesopotamia. Very interesting, but it's very different. It's a very different account. Uh, ultimately, when you, when you get right down to it, it doesn't make any sense. The boat that he built was not seaworthy, whereas the boat that Noah built was seaworthy. A guy named Tim Lovett, who works for Answers in Genesis, as far as I know, he, uh, he took those measurements and he did a whole bunch of ship building research and showed that, yes, just from what he had in there, uh, he constructed. In fact, you can go visit it. It's the uh, the Ark experience at the Answers in Genesis Museum. So go check it out. That was based on the measurements that were found in the book of Genesis. So there are definitely some um, oh, definitely some some parallel language, some ideas that both of them share. But the idea that the Bible simply copied from Mesopotamia, I fully reject that. Uh, and not just because I'm a believer. Okay. I, I reject it because uh, we can find similar ideas, but the way that they're transmitted, the intent behind them is very different. In, in uh, Mesopotamia, it's very mythological, whereas in the Bible, it's very much, here's where we are, here's this person, uh, we have found these places, and um, and there's a lot more that I can go into. now. Let me just kind of tease you a little bit. I'm writing a book on, on some of these very topics, talking about the Antichrist, but going way back to the beginning. Very excited about it. Uh, I had to take today off. I just I couldn't get into it. But uh, I've been working diligently uh, day after day trying to get this book done. And I go back and I, I look at um, the story of Satan, Enlil, who is Enlil in Mesopotamia, in great detail. I show that Nimrod was this... There was this uh, ancient god named Ninurta. That's one of his names. Another was Pabilsag. Um, and, and if you start following this thread, it's amazing. And then we find the iconography of Pabilsag showing up in Revelation chapter 9. Mind-blowing, right? <laughs> this is a great, it's just incredible stuff. So I, I just don't buy this idea that uh, Moses' Torah was a copycat. But hey, thanks. Good question. Very cool. All right. Okay, we got some more questions. Another one. Hold on. Well, that's not not the one. I was going to click on Ed's and then it moved. So let me get back to Ed's question. Uh, fantastic. All right. So uh, follow-up question. What is the difference between John's baptism and the baptism in Acts 238? All right, let's go to Acts 238 because I probably didn't give that any quality time. Acts 2.38, one second, all right, 
All right, then Peter said to them, repent, let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, I think this, so here he's talking to his, his, own, um, his own countrymen, and he's telling them to repent of where they are. Now, I, I believe that many of the people that came here were, uh, obviously this is at Pentecost, right? You have people that have been sent out into uh, a different part of the world, right? So we have dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men, from every nation under heaven. Now, this right here does pose a little bit of a, a question mark in my mind. The way I would understand it is you have Jews, comma, and I would put in the word and just to help me understand it, devout men from every nation under heaven. What is a devout man? Well, we know that Cornelius was a devout man, right? He, we saw that in chapter 10. So uh, he was one who feared God. I would suggest that he could qualify as a devout man. Now, I don't suppose, obviously, that he was showing up in Acts chapter 2. But what I'm suggesting is that you have people that may have remembered their heritage, that they were like Anna of the tribe of Asher. Right? Uh, so not specifically Jewish, but still you know, wanting to get back into relationship. And so they've come, they still consider themselves to be part of God's plan and God's economy and God's blessing and covenant. And so they came for the feast. And so here you have Peter uh, saying, you can, be, uh, you can be forgiven of your sins. So they understood that there was a problem that Israel had been sent away, the house of Israel had been sent away, and they needed to come into relationship with God. And it was through Jesus that this could happen. Uh, so as it goes on, and what's amazing, of course, is that we see uh, this whole thing here, that uh, everyone heard them speak in his own language. It's pretty cool. Uh, they got the, uh, the you have the um, flames of fire, right? The little things of Holy Spirit on people's heads, etc. Let me take you back to act uh, not acts but exodus chapter 20 verse 19 and maybe it's not verse 19 there we go verse 18 now all the people witnessed the thunderings the lightning flashes the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking and when the people saw it they trembled and stood afar off when we take a look at that in hebrew it's pretty cool so all the people saw or observed the kolot, translated as um, thunderings, could be, but it just means voices. That's what kolot actually means, voices. Ve'et lapidim. This doesn't specifically mean lightning. That's the word barak. Uh, lapidim are torches. Ve'et kol shofar And the sound of the shofar. Wow, this is really cool. And then, of course, we know that while this was all happening, Moses goes up there to get the law, and the people, what are they doing? They're down, they're down below, and they're playing. They're obviously, um, they are engaged in revelry. They are uh, worship, worshiping the false god, this Egyptian god. And 3,000 people die that day. On Pentecost, 3,000 people are added. So it's a new marriage covenant. Remember, back at 
Sinai. Who was there? Was you had the twelve tribes of Israel and drum roll, you had the mixed multitude, which included Egyptians. It may have included other nationalities as well, but it could have been because it doesn't say doesn't specifically say Egyptians, but they were probably part of them. But Egypt was a huge uh, place of commerce, so people may have gotten sort of stuck in, during the time of the plagues. And then they're like, I'm out of here. I'm, I'm going with Israel because this is the way to go. And so they had this mixed multitude of people. They were joined into Israel as well. They did not remain an outside group. They did not remain, hey, we're the mixed multitude, right? No, they became part of, they were assimilated into Israel. And so you have the same thing happening in Pentecost uh, at the Feast of Shavuot because they're happening on the same day. The same things are happening. It's amazing how you know God does it. And then, of course, 3,000 people are added. So the difference between the, the baptisms, John was calling people who were in the Old Covenant to repent of their sins uh, and to come in with a sense of contrition, but they remained in that covenant. Whereas at Pentecost, now you have a new covenant. And these people who are Jewish, many of them, some are not, of course, but now they're going to they're going to literally convert from being in the old covenant into the new covenant the new covenant and they knew about this new covenant this wasn't a mystery jeremiah had talked about the new covenant and they understood that mashiach was going to bring it many people understood that, that jesus did in fact bring it so they they understood these things they were putting two and two together as you go through acts I mean, there's so much amazing stuff in here in the book of Acts. It's just, you know, it's kind of mind-numbing. But um, let me think here. It's um, so Peter heals a guy. Hold on. I'm trying to refine to find it. Okay. So here he's talking to his countrymen again. And um, let me just back up a little bit. Just a little bit here. All right. So he says, men of Israel. Now, again, that could definitely includes Judeans. It could include non-Judeans as well. Why do you marvel at this? Why do you look so intently at us? As though by our own power, God on this, we made this man walk, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified our servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One, the just, and asked for a murder would be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Yet now, brethren, I know you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore. This is turn. Right? This is the turn. This is the same language. Repent, turn, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. So, Ed, per your previous question, we were talking in Jeremiah chapter 3. God says to them, you know, you did all kinds of bad stuff. I said, come back to me. I said, return, shuvialai, return to me. She did not return or repent. And so, uh, you know, I sent away Israel. Uh, Judah did not fear, went and played the harlot also. 
And yet for all this, Judah has been worse. Then the Lord should be black, backsliding Israel, showing herself more righteous, etc. But then he says, go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, return, backsliding Israel. Return, shuv, shuvi, repent. It's the same word. Only acknowledge your iniquity that you have transgressed. Now again, he's talking to the northern kingdom. He's talking to the northern kingdom. But they both need repentance. They both need repentance. Um, there's many, many more scriptures that I could turn to, but this gives you, I think, a flavor of what's happening. This stuff can be a little bit complex, especially if we have already a bias against some of these passages. So anyway, I'm, I'm going to let it stand there for now because we're almost out of time. But uh, thank you, brother. All right, let's see some other questions. All right, Ed, I see your question, but I'm going to hold it for now. Uh, Cindy asks, uh, what are the extra 45 days about spoken in Daniel? Excellent question, and I don't know. I don't know. That has been one of my burning questions for quite a while. You have an extra 30 days, right? It says uh, 1,260 days. Then you're blessed if you make it to 1,290 days. And then you're even more blessed if you make it to 1,345, 35. Is that right? Yeah, 35. <laughs> okay, 35 days. So yeah, there's a 45-day period between there. And I don't know. I've I've looked at it. I believe those are going to happen in the fall feast, the fall feast. So if the 1260 refers to the return of Jesus at um at the time of of uh trumpets, that could be it. Here's an idea though. Uh, there's typically like a 40-day period before we get to trumpets. So maybe, I don't know, maybe, um, you know, 30 days before we get to the Feast of Trumpets, Jesus comes back. You know, I don't know. This is where I can only speculate. I don't know, but I'm I'm believing that that, that all happens in that period. Uh, it does take us up close to the Feast of Hanukkah, but I don't know if that's significant. It could be, but I don't know. So I, I'm sorry. I cannot give you a definitive answer. I can only just take a couple wild guesses. So, um, anyway. All right. Here is Incarnate Unlimited. What do you think of the Bahar Israel, Bahar Israel being pronounced Yashar in the Sefer? Um, Okay, he says the next question, name, sorry, not Bahar. Okay, what do you think of the name Israel? What do you think of the name Israel being pronounced Yashar? Oh, well, Yashar is kind of like a nickname. I think it's a hopeful nickname. You know, uh, if you have a, a child and you dream of him becoming uh, a, a concerto pianist, you might call him Beethoven or something, right? You might have a nickname, uh, Smooth Fingers or something like that. Uh, in hopes that he does it. Obviously, Israel never achieved that idea of Yashar. Yashar just means straight, okay? So it means direct, straight, Yashar, uh, versus crooked. And that's that's the goal. So that is one of the names that will, will be true in time, that Israel will be called Yashar, but they haven't achieved that yet. 
Uh, I think that's kind of obvious. Uh, but um, yeah, it, it's coming. So thanks for the question. Very good. I'm looking at some more questions here, guys. Let's see. All right, here's a question from Lester Moyle. Is it possible that the Turin Shroud gave the DNA to bring an actual image to life? It's been 33 years cloning. Uh, would have a 33-old male here now. Hmm. Well, I, I think a lot of weird things could happen. You know, until we have evidence of that happen, we're only just guessing, uh, kind of fanciful guesses. I'm not, I'm not certain that the Shroud of Turin uh, is the actual burial cloth of Jesus. I've seen some very compelling evidence that makes me think could be, could be. But for me, there's always a little bit of doubt. Um, I don't know. Uh, you know, so I think when you listen to the other side, they present some reasons why, no, this isn't uh, the Shroud of Turin. This isn't, it's the Shroud, but it's not Jesus' Shroud. So I don't know. I think it's a it's a very interesting question to ponder, but I until we have physical evidence, and I'm not saying it couldn't happen, but again, until we have physical evidence, we will we can only just have some uh, other fanciful guesses. So I'm I'm personally going to just hold off and not uh, not go anywhere. <laughs> so. Um, yeah, uh, Keith uh, says, thanks for your response. I asked this in context of your rejection of Jasher. Another book's written later, but don't give these books the grace of oral history. We give Torah, and then there's Ezra. Well, I mean, uh, I, I don't reject Jasher just because it may have been oral at one point. I, I think it's just a late book. Uh, I think it's a, a very clever forgery. You know, during the Second Temple period, there was a... a a whole genre of literature known as pseudepigrapha. Pseuda mean a lie, not true, false. Pigrapha, something that's written. Okay, so pseudepigrapha was was thing were things that were falsely written, right? So, you know, this is where I find the Book of Enoch very interesting, and I think parts of it may be true, but I'm not I'm not certain that all of it was true, because it could fall into that category. Even though I'm a bit biased toward it. I, I, I would, you know, say, yeah, that's, that's a, that's a great book. Um, but is it the word of God? I wouldn't go that far. I, I think it can contain some very important history and it may include some things that were actually passed down from Enoch himself, but there's a whole bunch of other books that almost certainly were not written down. Like there's one called the Testament of the Twelve Patriarchs, and supposedly it was the patriarchs that wrote it. And yet, you know, we find it in Greek. We don't have any Semitic sources. There's nothing in Hebrew. We have not found other sources that would suggest that that this book was uh, somehow being, you know, considered. And, and we we know that the rabbis already had essentially what we call the Old Testament. That was already the corpus of books that they considered to be God-inspired. They never considered these other books, Jasher, for example, to be inspired because it didn't exist. Jasher did not exist back in that time. Now, there's another book, uh, which is around 480, 
called The Life of Adam and Eve. I remember when the first time I read that, I'm like, this is amazing. You know, why didn't I read this before? Because it fills in all the blanks. And I think that's the reason, because it fills in all the blanks. Somebody, uh, probably somewhere between the second, third, or fourth century AD, said, I've got to fill in the blanks. And they did a wonderful job. They really did. It's a great story, but I don't think it's true. <laughs> so that's why I I am very skeptical of those books. Um, you know, we 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 can poo-poo scholars. Uh, you know, I think some scholars have weird agendas, but I think probably most scholars are saying, just show me the evidence. Let's let's understand what's happening. Let's judge it. Let's let's put scientific theory. We can use scientific method. Doesn't make you a scientist if you study the, the Old Testament or the history or something. But uh, you can use scientific method to help get rid of the fluff and get rid of the junk so that the researcher becomes more objective and less biased. That's the goal, is to try to use those kinds of filters so that I get rid of my bias. Because do I have bias? Yes, I do. Absolutely. Just like you do and the guy that translated the New King James and all these other things, they all have bias. So what we want to do is we want to remove my subjectivity from the equation, and we're going to try to use, as best as we can, a scientific method for determining these things. So we look at the evidence. What does the evidence say? Show me the text. You know, what language is this from? Uh, where was it found? Uh, who Do we know who wrote it? Uh, what was the inspiration for this? Are there other witnesses that say that they have seen this book elsewhere. If we start finding those things, then we have we start building a really good, really good case. But if we just have a book that shows up out of the blue and it purports to fill in all the blanks and it's like, but <laughs> do we have any any textual evidence that this is a real thing? I would say be very, very careful. So um all right, fantastic. All right, so brilliant radiance. Is your hair a wig that covers a big pulsating brain? And can you help explain the meaning of the second part of Daniel? <laughs> uh, no, this is this is real. Um, uh, so thank you for, I think, the compliment. Um, appreciate it. Uh, anyway, um, so Daniel 12.2, the second part. Sure, Daniel 12.2. And I need to share this with you guys. One second. All right, Daniel 12, 2. It says, uh, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to everlasting shame, to shame and everlasting contempt. All right. So actually, I will be talking about this on Shabbat. Uh, we have gotten to Revelation chapter 20, to the latter part of Revelation 20. Uh, this is part G. It's only taken me a little while to get there. But I'm going to talk about, you know, what happens after Satan stages his coup and he fails, then we have the great white throne judgment. So yes, we're going to talk about hell. Not a fun topic to talk about, but necessary. Very, very necessary to talk about that. And I'm going to go into detail on these different things. But to just kind of give you the short of it, the um, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Yeah, I don't know if there is a short answer, but let me think if I can give you a short answer. Uh, th there's definitely one class of people, those who take the mark of the beast. They get all the, it's 100% God's wrath for them, 
right? So that means that if they get 100%, then everybody else gets less than 100%, right? The, the hypocrites, as it's called. Jesus talks about sending out his angels. He's going to gather them first, throw them into the fire, then he'll gather his wheat into the barn. So, uh, in fact, I was looking at these some different words today. There, there are various words that talk about the sinners, the wicked, being uh, completely consumed. In fact, I might even be able to show you. Uh, this is a little preview. So let me open this PowerPoint here. Let's see if it's going to open. Doesn't want to play nicely. All right, looks like it's thinking about it. Hold on. Oh, I know. There we go. All right, cool. Got it. So the reason, the reason here, all right, one second. I got to, I got to set everything up. And I'm working on that. Stop sharing that. Close that. And. Um, Hold on. Stay tuned. I'm working on it. All right, here we go. So sharing my screen right now. And there we go. And let me make this big. All right. Um, okay. So actually, I'm concerned now that you guys can't see my screen. Yes, you can. All right, good. Whew, I did it. All right. So, uh, burned up, consumed, annihilated, uh, we see here in Matthew 3.13, he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Notice that the fire is unquenchable. The fire is God's fire. So, naturally, God's fire is unquenchable, right? It never goes out. Uh, you can't get enough water to put that out. It's unquenchable. It's the same fire that burned up Nadav and Abihu. Uh, in John 15, 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. There's the Greek word kayo. So katakayo uh, means to burn down, burn up, consume, to completely consume, as it were. For example, Babylon will be utterly burned with fire. We know that according to the prophecy, Babylon will be completely destroyed. Not just mostly, but completely. Uh, I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares and bind them into bundles to burn them. Right? So these are some of the, the terms are using this, this Greek word katakayo, uh, which is to, to burn, burn up, burn down, however you want to uh, look at that. And here's some from Malachi and from Psalm. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven. That's the Greek word keomeni. Uh, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will be stubble, and the day which is coming shall burn them up in the English, velahat uh, otam is the Hebrew. Anapsi in Greek says the Lord of hosts that will leave them neither root nor branch. So if you take up root and branch, that means there's nothing left of the tree. God is saying the tree is going to be completely gone. It's going to be completely burned up. Uh, the Greek word there is wipe up, clean out. And then in Psalm 21, you shall make them as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. The Lord shall swallow them up, Balem, in his wrath, and the fire shall devour them, Vetochlem Esh, and the fire will consume them, will be will eat them. 
And then we have that same uh, idea in Greek, kataphagete, which is by fire to devour, to utterly consume or destroy. So based on, based on these uh, usages of the word, you get the sense that people that are uh, going to experience this everlasting shame, it's not necessarily, and again, I'm going to do the, uh, the reveal here on Shabbat because I want to be careful about my words, but it's not necessarily that they are consciously, you know, looking up and saying, oh, I wish I had chosen the red pill or whatever. You know, I wish I had accepted Jesus. So it's not that that they are they themselves are experiencing that pain and the shame, but the shame of their decision, the shame of their judgment will forever be noticed. And we see that as well in Isaiah chapter 66, where it says that from uh, for as a new heavens and new earth remain that I shall create shall remain before me, all flesh shall come to worship me from one new Sabbath, from one new moon to another, and from one new Sabbath to another Sabbath. All flesh will come to worship, and they will go out and see the corpses of the men who transgressed against me, where the worm does not die, and the fire is not quenched. So that is the passage that Jesus was referring to when he talked about it's better to be, you know, lose a hand instead of taking two hands, take one uh, instead of being cast into Gehenna. So again, there's a lot of history there. I want to show all of that so that we get a better sense. But per your question, the shame and contempt that they could be experiencing. Um, again, it may not be them experiencing the shame, but the shame is put on them because of their ultimate fate, which is destruction. So I will, I promise to do more on Shabbat. Very cool. All right. I think we're out of time, guys. This is fantastic. I uh, just want to make sure in case maybe there's a, Really quick question. Uh, okay, here we go. Uh, I didn't phrase my question properly. Could Yisrael be pronounced Yashael by chance? I don't think that's. Uh, I don't think that's possible. Um, I, I mean, I guess it's possible. I don't think it's likely. So if it were, if it, if that were the case, it would mean, uh, God is straight basically. So yeah, I, I, I think that's, uh, I think that's unlikely. I think that's unlikely. So, all right. One more question. <laughs> all right, Gary, uh, once people come to understand their need for a savior and they are ready to be born again, I often tell them to trust and rely on the words in red, get to know what your savior said. Good point. But since I have been listening to your teachings, I'm more inclined to believe you need to know the whole story in order to understand the words in red. Uh, are the words in red enough for part three, eternal salvation and righteous living? Hey, I think you need very little to be saved. Uh, the thief on the cross, all he had was the words in red, right? Uh, and barely that. He recognized something in Jesus as that Jesus was righteous. Jesus had the power and authority to save him. And in a very, very simple prayer, he, he asked for mercy and Jesus gave it to him. So I don't think we need to be theologians in order to be saved. 
Thank God for that. That is such good news because we would never agree on anybody's a theology. Well, if you don't believe my theology, then you're going to hell. Uh, people say that, and I think that's unfortunate. I think we need to be very, very careful. Um, so I think, I think just having a basic understanding of, you know, the publican, God have mercy upon me, a sinner. That's enough. That's it. You don't need to have all this other stuff. Where does all the other stuff come in, though? Per, you know, it's a great question, Gary. I really appreciate it. Because it, it does, it's kind of one of these existential questions, you know, and I ask this to myself sometimes, you know, I'm a pastor, I spend countless hours studying, which I enjoy doing, by the way, but, but I do, and I, 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 sometimes I wonder, am I doing something worthy with my life, you know, maybe I should have been an engineer and done something different, you know, build something, go build bridges or something to help humanity. Uh, is this really worthwhile, you know, why do we need to study this stuff, why go into all the depth? But then I say, well, God gave us all this stuff. So then if he gave us all of these texts, I think he wanted us to study the text. Not that you have to be an expert to be inducted into the Commonwealth of Israel experience. Think about it. Let's say that you are uh, not a native uh, U.S. Porn person. I was going to say Native American, but you're, um, yeah, I know. Anyway. You're not born in the United States. You want to immigrate to the United States. Obviously, you have to get your shots and all that stuff. But let's say, yes, they say, okay, come on in. Uh, there's a you know kind of a basic test you have to take. You don't have to know everything about American culture to become an American. You don't need to know all the, the reruns of Seinfeld. And you don't need to uh, understand you know all of our silly TV shows and our silly food customs and you don't have to be a connoisseur at eating hamburgers and <laughs> connoisseur, right? Um, or Doritos or, you know, all this, the Americana. You don't have to know all that. You, you just have, there's some basic requirements. Uh, one of them is is a pledge of fidelity. You know, are you going to be faithful to the United States of America? Yes. Right? It, it's kind of summed up in the, the Pledge of Allegiance that we uh, did as kids. That's all you need, just a basic sense that I've blown it. I can be inducted into God's kingdom. Here I am. Okay, now I'm in, right? So now let's say I've kind of moved to America using my example. Well, now I start watching TV. I start eating Doritos, and I, um, you know, get I get in, you know, further educated on my American experience. And so, those, you know, all of that American experience is is part of being an American. It's part of our culture. You know, good, bad, and the ugly, right? So in order to come into a relationship with God, you don't have to be an expert. And this is what was the debate in Acts chapter 15. They've got to keep the law of Moses in order to come in. And Peter's like, no, no, you don't have to keep it first. You've got to keep it second. First, come as you are. That's it. Come as you are. And that'll be enough. In fact, that was the Jewish, that was the more uh, liberal Jewish perspective, the, the Hellenistic uh, Alexandrian perspective is come as you are, you know, be baptized, repent of your, your paganism, lift your hands in prayer and worship to the Most High, and, and then, then you'll get to study Torah. And that's essentially what Peter said in Acts chapter, uh, chapter 15, is he said, no, you don't have to do that 
first. Maybe it was James. I'm sorry. Then you have Acts 15, uh, verse uh, 16 or something like that. Oops. I am way off. Let's try again. Acts 15. We'll kind of jump around there. All right. So he says, um, here's some basic things to do, right? So if you're going to come in, these Gentiles who are turning to God, right? This is their, this is your their baby step. Step number one, turn to God. Number two, you need to abstain from things polluted by idols. That's your basic paganism. You can't turn to God and still be doing this stuff, right? You can't be doing this. And part of that paganism was sexual immorality. You had a lot of sexual immorality in the temples themselves. You had things strangled uh, and from blood. So these are just the basics, right? Again, if you want to become an American citizen, you don't have to know how to cook hamburgers, but there are some basic things that you got to do. Right. And then for Moses, that is the first five books, has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. So look, you will get your training from Shabbat to Shabbat. You'll study Moses, you'll study Torah, you'll study the prophets as you go, but you don't need to come with that education you need to gain that education afterward right so come as you are repent of course but come as you are you know all the the warts and everything come to jesus as you are today ask him to forgive you and he says i forgive you come in now you're part of my kingdom say hallelujah now study to show yourself approved study to understand what his word is saying so that that you know, you, I, and then those who are disciples behind us, the disciples that we're raising up and we're teaching, now we're teaching them this is what the kingdom looks like. When you started, you came in, you were forgiven, and now there's all this learning to do. You don't have to get a PhD in this, but it should be a lifetime of learning so that you uh, understand really what God's all about. We always want to be careful, of course, never to let the learning substitute the relationship and that can happen that's called gnosticism that's where we let knowledge about god replace relationship with god so all of the studying that we do i remind myself of this a lot all the studying i'm do doing is not just to say i'm smarter i know the inside secrets on god if that's all i'm doing it's a waste of time but if i'm studying these things to draw me closer to god then that's a worthwhile endeavor Fantastic. Thank you, guys. Lots of fun as usual. Uh, next week, I'm going to have Michael Heiser on. At least that's what we planned on. Hopefully, I got to double check with him. But that's the goal is to have Michael Heiser on. I'm really excited about that. Should be a lot of fun. So thanks again, guys. God bless you. Take care.